Reflections on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 5 So the disease is always having to be allowed to run its full course in someone so that others can ward off its fatal symptoms. And I think that's precisely the sacrificial system. Caiaphas says it's better that one should die than that the whole nation should be destroyed. And allowing, and this is also the Gerizim demoniac, you know, in the, in the New Testament, the story of the Gerizim community, they loved this, this madman up in, raving in the tombs. They needed him. In the same way that we need, we need uh, moral reprobates in order to hone our own moral acuity. Where would we... Now, I had, this is terrible to say because sometimes I sit up here and pontificate, moralize about the waywardness of the world we're in and, and I don't plan on uh, stopping that anytime soon. <laughs> but I do want to repent because when one does that, one is essentially feeding on the moral failures. One is honing one's own moral sensibility at the expense of of others. It would be much better for us to say there, but for the grace of God go I. But, you know, when the world starts going down the tubes and you have young children you're trying to raise, <laughs> you get a little... But anyway, we should stop in the midst of all that and, and uh, be a little contrite about it. But the point I'm trying to make is what Paul has seen is that the, is that the structures, religious and moral legal structures that we have concocted in order to try to rid ourselves of the sinfulness of the world are feeding on the sinfulness in some strange and convoluted way. And uh, it, it is a very powerful... That's what he learned from the cross. And that's what he learned on the road to Damascus because he discovered it was happening to him. Just in general, I would say, philosophy tends to follow you know, Aristotle and look for the mean, the the some kind of balance and some, and I think the biblical tradition is prophetic and not philosophical and it it is it is paradoxical if Aristotle say would say well look let's maintain a happy meeting let's don't go too far this way too far that way Paul would say when the measure of sin was full grace overflowed that's no, that's, that just blows Greek philosophy right out of the water, <laughs> in my estimation. It's, it's so much more radical and in, inexplicable. It's, uh, and Paul, you see, when Paul tries to, when Paul tries to put articulation to these paradoxes, he is like, I, reading through it this week, I was thinking, I used to have a, I used to have a, um, a border collie, you know, and, and this dog had in her genes, how to chase sheep, you know, herd sheep. And when she was a young dog, we'd go out to the, to the field and she anything, she would go and just go off to the right and cut quick back to the left and off to the right and back to the left. Anything she was chasing, but there was this constant sort of keeping them inside some brackets that she was moving toward. And I thought of that this week reading Paul because Paul will start down, he'll start making some point 
and it'll be very emphatic, and he will not hold back. He goes all the way with it, and he says, absolutely. And then he looks, and he sees where this thing is leading, (laughs) and he says, absolutely not. (laughs) Over and over again, he'll say, well, does that mean thus and so? And his reply is, certainly not. And he turns right around and goes in the other direction. (laughs) You see, not because he's trying to reach a happy medium, but because there's so much paradox in this. And Paul is speaking not only eschatologically, but also realistically. He's not, he's not some pie in the sky visionary. He's, he, he's a very real, that's the biblical tradition too, you know, it's right there on the ground. And so it may be one thing to be following something out that has real eschatological power. But then you start looking around and you realize that if, if we were to live entirely according to that eschatological vision right now, what might happen? He said. And so he turns around and says, are we talking, is the law, do we throw the law out? No, absolutely not. He comes back in the other direction. So, so I think it's, it, it's much more powerful, if more bewildering, than a, than a philosophical analysis of it. What I want to try to focus on to some extent today is the situation of the scandal. And the scandal is the point at which the structures, whether they are sacrificial or legal, you know, the, as I tried to point out a second ago, the legal ones, which could be religiously legal in the sense of the Torah or just the criminal justice system, they are, they are derivatives of the sacrificial system. And both the sacrificial and the legal ones are designed to maintain some kind of social order. They're designed essentially to quarantine and to contain certain dangerous forms of mimetic competition uh, so that some sort of social order can be maintained. Now, that doesn't mean they have no higher purpose they they make possible a higher purpose. It's uh, the, if we go mad, if the social order breaks down, and we go mad, then it's not going to do our our religious lives any good. If something sweeps over us, similar to what is sweeping over the people in Rwanda, it's not going to turn us into saints. So, just basic social and psychological housekeeping requires that some order be maintained. It doesn't mean that's the end of life, but some order should be maintained. These structures exist to do that. But there comes a point at which there's so much scandal in the social setting that those structures can't, every time they set up some barrier, they actually incite the challenge to their authority. And that's in part what I think Paul is talking about. So, if sin takes advantage of the law, grace takes advantage of sin. And now, we're in this strange feedback loop that Paul spends the rest of the letter of Romans trying to figure out. It's like some Nebus strip, you know, where sin and grace and... what, What is going on, you see? So let's just follow Paul through here and see how he tries to understand the human condition. 
towards the end of chapter 5, he had said, where the measure of sin is full, the measure of grace overflows. And he starts chapter 6 by saying, what then shall we say? Let us persist in sinning so that grace may abound. That's the famous, shall we sin? It really means continue to sin. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. This, you see, this is one of these things where he, he's run that argument just as far out as it's going to go. And he sees where it's going. And he sees the logic of it. He sees what people are going to conclude from it. He sees, he sees in his mind's eye, uh, what they, the, the, the life that might, he, I mean, in a sense, this is putting it's too campy, but in a way, he, he, he sees into the future and he sees the moral catastrophe and he sees people saying, well, Paul told me that, uh, <laughs> and, and he, he wants to head that off. Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin go on living in sin? So that now dying to sin is the alternative to, to obeying the law. So one has to die to sin. How do you die to sin? He says, or do you not know that those of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? By the way, death, even in the Gospels, you know, Jesus speaks of his his as crucifixion as a baptism and the baptism for the still is of course but i think the early church was much closer to a sense of it is a is a death it's a death of the old self a death to the old anthropos and the birth of the new so he says we have been baptized into christ's death through baptism in his, into his death, we were indeed buried with him so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the Father's glory, we too might conduct ourselves in a new way of life. Uh, Barrett makes the following point, which I think is powerful. He says, Baptism is not simply a religious rite, but springs from the fact that an hour has struck on the world clock. And that's really Paul's sense here, you know. This is, this is, it's eschatological. Something profound has happened. And a lot of things happened when that, when that hour was struck on the world clock. But one of the things that happened was that the law as a way of maintaining some kind of, first of all, the law as a way of achieving religious righteousness. And secondly, the law as a, as a way of maintaining some kind of social order was fatally wounded because the myth that it was, the, the myth that that law was absolutely other than the sinfulness it strove to repress was exploded at the moment of the crucifixion because the uh, the forces of law were 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 authorizing the crucifixion it was the revelation of the com- of the complicity between the structures of law and the structures of sinfulness and it, so the, a moment is struck on the world clock because as soon as that is revealed, then the human race has to get about the business of finding something other than religion, conventional religion, and law as a way of ke- keeping itself civil and sane. I'm going to skip just for a second while we're on this subject to the first verse of chapter 8 where he says, now then, there is no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. For him, we, we're so used to this 
language and in a way it's been so it's been turned into the subject of so many sermons and homilies and I'm probably turning it into another one here that we can't feel its originality and power uh, but to to live in Christ Jesus was for Paul to live in another reality altogether outside the law if you're going to live outside the law you've got two choices one is sin and uh, being delivered over as he says in chapter 1 to all of the squalor of sinful life and 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 law simply to live under the law is simply to live in another tidier uh, <laughs> to live under the law is simply to live in the in the suburban version of sin if I, I don't know if that's the right metaphor but in a tidier version of a sinful world and so it's not fundamentally different but to live in Christ is radically different. It's absolutely different. And that's what he's saying we have to do. And in one, for those who live in Christ, there is no condemnation. And this word is only used in this one verse in the whole of the New Testament. The word is katakrima. It's only used here. And uh, Fitzmaier, Joseph Fitzmaier says that it the word is cursed or condemnation, but Fitzmaier says cursed is better, and it echoes what is said in Ephesians, and I'll quote the Ephesians. This is a little exegetical here, too exegetical, but I just want to go through it for a second. If In Ephesians, the author of Ephesians says, all those who depend on the works of the law are under a curse, since Scripture says, quote, cursed is the one who fails to fulfill the provisions of this law. And that's from Deuteronomy 27. And they're cursed because the author of Ephesians, following Paul, realizes that we can't fulfill the rules of the law. There's no possible way. Paul gave it the best shot, and he fell short. He realized it can't be done. So everybody falls under the curse. And what does the curse consist of? In the next chapter in Deuteronomy, we have this. If you do not keep and observe all the words of the law which were written in this book in the fear of this glorious and awesome and awe-inspiring name, Yahweh your God, Yahweh will strike you down with monstrous plagues, you and your descendants, with plagues grievous and lasting, diseases pernicious and enduring. That's the curse. The primitive sacred literally puts, quote, the fear of God into those who are under its power. And as I said, there are plenty of places in the world today that wish they were. There are lots of people, I'm sure, in the last few weeks in Rwanda that, that would have been very pleased to, to have somebody put the fear of God in, in, into everybody. So it is a, it's, a, it's a tremendous blessing compared to the, to, the, to the utter chaos that can take place uh, without it. But Paul is saying it's now over with. We can't go back to that. We, there is no condemnation. There is no curse. No curse will fall on us. But one of the reasons no curse will fall on us is because it won't fall on anybody. We're outside of that. This, this is, this is really is of a piece with, with that thing I said a couple of weeks ago about the, uh, the age of forbearance is over. So when Paul says there's no condemnation for those who live in Christ Jesus, and we read what condemnation is like in Deuteronomy. 
we, we, what we have is the old eon that lives under the law, which is under the, under the canopy of sacred violence, which can still visit its violence on the transgressors in the name of God, and the new eon, in which the key to religious uprightness and social harmony is living in Christ. And then Paul has to help us understand what in the world he means by that. But I, but I'm not going directly to that. I want to keep following on Paul's analysis of the, of the law and where it fits in. Now remember, he has said in chapter 6, chapter 5, he, he uh, showed us how sin uh, made grace possible. In chapter 6, he said, well, should we sin so that grace may abound? Absolutely not. And he'll say, well, should we, should, uh, it, does that mean the law is finished? No, the law is not finished. He keeps going back and forth. So he tries to sort it out with another metaphor in chapter 7. He says, are you unaware, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know what law is, that the law has authority over a human being only as long as one is alive? Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is alive. But if the husband dies, she is released from the from the law regarding her husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she gives herself to another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband has died, she is free of that law and does not become an adulteress if she gives herself to another man. So, you too have died to the law through the body of Christ that you might give yourselves to another, to him who has, who has been raised from the dead so as to bear fruit for God. This is the idea that on the cross, the, the law dies on the cross. The law died on the cross with Christ. That's clear from these passages in Paul. It's now finished. And then he says, For when we were living merely natural lives, sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members so as to bear fruit for death. The more I read this verse, the more I think this has everything in it. Actually, there's one, there's another verse later on that has everything in it. It's like these little dewdrops, you know, where you see the whole panorama in this one little thing. And here you have it all. And how long would it take us to, to draw the implications out? When we were living merely natural lives, Sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members so as to bear fruit for death. I think it sums up everything, but I'm, I'm not... I have Paul's text, and I'm still not as good as Paul at trying to figure out what it means. Uh, but I think that's... that. So what I want to do is to try to draw some of these things out. He mentions here natural lives. Paul, you know, has taken a lot of heat from us modern for daring to lecture us on sexual matters. Uh, every time Paul mentions uh, natural lives, but especially body and flesh, we 
instantly feel offended. First of all, we're we we're sure that he's talking about sexuality, and um, we're handling that situation so well that we we feel that what what does he have to do? What's he doing telling us about that? And we're up in arms, you know. So I want to try to follow on a little bit and see what he's talking about and uh, and maybe do a little more try to do a little more justice to it. In chapter 6 he says the following, this we know that our old self has been crucified with him so that the sinful body might be rendered powerless and we might no longer be slaves to sin. Now the body for Paul, soma in Greek, is a he uses it in many ways, the way we use the word body in many ways. So he, sometimes he's talking about the physical body, sometimes he's talking about the social body, the body of Christ. Uh, sometimes he's talking about the body in a, in a metaphorical way, and so on. So he doesn't use it univocally any more than we do. But I think in order to appreciate what he's talking about here, I think we have to give a little more space to the idea of body as having a social element in it. Again, for Paul, Paul's not a modern. For Paul, his existence is 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 rooted in other existence. It's rooted in God. It's rooted in his relationship. So he does the idea of the entitative self, which is a totally modern idea, and it's one that we have that we have turned into a little piece of idolatry. Paul just doesn't walk around with that in his head. He doesn't have to stop and say, oh, well, when I say me, I mean me in relationship to all that is, to the, to the source of all life and to other lives. He doesn't have to say it. It's part of the way he thinks as a first century person. And so when he says, we though many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, Notice how he's using body. Body has a very definite social element in it. And I think we should try we should try to bring that to the fore when we listen to Paul talk about the body. That sinful body. The old self was crucified so that that sinful body might be rendered powerless. That is to say there's something powerful about that body that is powerful in a pernicious way, and it has to be rendered powerless so we can be freed of it. Now, do you know any bodies that are powerful in a pernicious way and that we need to be freed of their power? Well, if you think about that, are there bodies you would, one of them you would come to pretty soon would be the body politic, you see, or something like that. There, it's, it, it's not, that's not to say it's entirely a social thing, because clearly, as I'm going to try to show, and I want to discuss how this term might be collated, so to speak, with Paul's the discussion of the flesh, because I think I think they really do relate in a in a in a fascinating way. But all I'm trying to do at this point is to say, look, when we hear the word body, let's let's feel a little of that social implication that I think was clearly there for Paul in Harrington Kelly's work on Paul. He says speaking as Paul does in in chapter 7, speaking in the first person, he says, My inmost self is the inmost other, 
I dwell in the group and the group dwells in me. And Henry Kelly says this sums up Paul's anthropology. Paul's psychology is really a, a subcategory of his anthropology, and that's it. It's not something that he stops to think about, but it's simply the, the mental environment in which he's living. And we're living in another one. And the question is, which one has the more validity? And that's what, in part what we're here to find out. But we, don't, we shouldn't start out by making the assumption that ours does. I want to try to fill in two things that we talked about so far this morning. One is sin taking advantage of the law, and the other is the power, the pernicious power, of the sinful body with a understanding that term, at least in part, social. And I was reminded of this thing that we talked about from Augustine. And here's something Augustine said. This was when Augustine was a young man, a young student, and uh, he fell in with this crowd of of uh, sort of budding nihilist. And uh, here, in one place, he talks about uh, their little minor criminality. And he says that, was it possible to take pleasure in what was illicit for no reason other than that it was not allowed? He's trying to understand. He, he stole pears and things, you know. They just, these guys would be out, or they'd do something else even worse than that. And they would just do it because, because why? Because the law said don't do it. What does that say? That's the scandal. Once you get to that place, you're in, you're in scandal. And at that point, the law, which tries to put out the fire, just throws flames on it. So Augustine says, look, what was it? Why did I do that? It must have been just because it was not allowed. He said, I participated in theft, quote, in which I loved nothing but the theft itself. That is to say, the fact that it was thievery. And then he goes on to say, more interestingly, and this is where the... So that's that's sin taking advantage of the law. But then if you want to say, what is this sinful body? He says, yet, if I had been alone, I would not have done it. I remember my state of mind to be thus at the time. Alone, I would never have done it. Therefore, my love in that act was to be associated with the gang in whose company I did it. If I had liked... He's talking about stealing pears. If I had liked the pears, which I stole, and actually desired to enjoy them, I could by myself have committed that wicked act. But my pleasure was not in the pairs. It was in the crime itself, done in association with a sinful group. It was all done for a giggle. Alone I would not have committed that crime, in which my pleasure lay not in what I was stealing, but in the act of theft. But had I been alone, it would have given me absolutely no pleasure nor would I have committed it. So here's the sinful body. I think we have to start reading Paul this way. The sinful body has a lot... Is The is the alternative to the sinful body is the body of Christ. But each has a very powerful social dimension. And, by the way, if we do... He's talking about doing a crime. If we perform virtuous acts, the same thing applies. That's why Paul's talk about the body of Christ is perfectly... Right, and very powerful. 
when Augustine said, I would never have committed that crime had it not been for the... If I, let, me, let me paraphrase. I would not have committed that crime had it not been for the sinful body. Now, when it comes to performing acts of virtue, can we say anything less? No. What we say, what we have to say is, I could not have, I could not have performed that virtuous act had it not been for the body of Christ. Had it not been, you see, this is the, the body of Christ is the church in that larger sense, and we are we are influenced by that. Let's admit it. It's a lot better to admit it than to continue to think that we're doing these things because we're strong individuals. That's a bunch of hooey. We are under the influence of this other body. It brings out the best in us sometimes. But then Augustine goes on, under the influence of the sinful body, out of a game and a jest came an avid desire to do injury and an appetite to inflict loss on someone else without any motive on my part of personal gain and no pleasure in settling a score. So suddenly, the jest, which is a sinful body, they were going, oh, let's just break a few laws, pick a few pairs, ha, 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 all done for a giggle. And then the giggle becomes uh, something more sinister. You see, then, the, then, the, then it starts to... And, you know, in all grade B movies, you have the bad guy who starts off, and by the way, this is done marvelously well in uh, Jesus Christ Superstar with Herod. It starts off with this guy, oh, ha, 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 ha. And right in the middle of the ha ha, there's about the about the fourth ha, and the ha 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 becomes sinister. And then, you see, everything is getting down to violence. And that's what Augustine's talking about. Oh, it was all done for a giggle, and then suddenly, out of a game of jest, an avid desire to do injury, an appetite to inflict uh, loss on someone else for no reason. It's, it's mean, it means that that sinful body is falling into its sacrificial uh, arrangement. You see, it's becoming that scapegoating impulses are taking over. And he said, and then he says, as soon as the words are spoken, let's go and do it. One is ashamed not to be shameless. So he joined in with his crowd. And the next line in Augustine is, who can untie this extremely twisted and tangled knot? And I think it's the same twisted and tangled knot that, that Paul is trying to untie here. You see, how does the law play into this sinfulness and what does, this, what does the sinful body have to do with it? How do we sort this thing out? So Paul extends himself in, in an argument about the law's complicity in sinfulness. And as he's wont to do, he runs it right out to the limit. And as usual, he gets, he suddenly looks, sees where this thing is going. And so he says, what then can we say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Turns around in his tracks. Certainly not. Yet, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. Now again, I think we have to understand this is talking about a scandalous situation. Because when the loss, when in the garden, when the commandment was don't eat of that that tree, there was no desire to eat of that tree. 
that had to await the serpent. But now in a scandalous situation, we are all serpents to one another. Every exhibition of desire awakens, or potentially does, awakens a like desire in those who are who are witnesses to the exhibition. So, the law that said, thou shalt not covet, awakened a covetous desire in Paul. That's a tremendous insight. If For somebody who's trying to analyze the, the impotence of the law to save the human situation, and particularly the human situation once it reaches this threshold of scandal... It's really powerful. Now, for Paul, the, for the for the Jews of the time of Paul, there was a there was a tendency to link the first commandment and the last. The one he's just quoted is the tenth commandment. The first commandment is you sh- you shall love the Lord your God and have no other gods. So the first commandment is a commandment against idolatry, and the second one is a commandment against covetousness, and they are linked in a way that is that, in a sense, links them both with the two great commandments in the New Testament, to love the Lord your God with your whole heart and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, one has to do with the right relation to God, and the other has to do with the right right relations between human beings. And the wrong relation between human beings, according to the biblical account of things, is covetousness. Now, here's the first commandment. I'll read it from Deuteronomy 5. Nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his field, his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, his ass, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Just look at the anthropology of this first. These, all the rules, all the rules are designed to maintain some kind of social order. But this is, this is one that's quite remarkable. The last commandment is quite remarkable because it goes to the heart of the problem. When you say, thou shalt not commit murder, then you're trying to stop the problem at a, at a pretty late stage, after the scandal is already bred. If you say, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, and so on and so forth, thou shalt not commit adultery, these are all manifestations of this problem at a later stage. The Tenth Commandment is talking about it's the genesis of this problem, covetousness, mimetic desire. Covetousness is simply a perfect synonym for mimetic desire. And that's all, that's all it is. And, and Paul has amazingly located the problem right there. And then he has said, that's the problem. Here's how the law tries to solve it. The law tries to solve it by saying you shouldn't do it. And once we get into this scandalous state, the very fact that it tells us we shouldn't inspires us to do it. And there, therein is the problem with the law. All the laws of property are just ways of trying to prevent this social meltdown that, that happens when, there, when mimetic desire runs rampant. So the property laws aren't designed to protect property fundamentally. They're designed to protect some kind of social order, so that you can, so that if the grass is always greener, you know, or whatever, somebody else's spouse is always attractive, or somebody else's cattle, or whatever it is, you can always say, "Well, look, this this my property starts here. Go down to the courthouse and find out." You see, 
or that that uh, you know livestock over there has my brand on it, or you said that woman has my ring on her finger, or whatever. It's a way of keeping that mimetic rampage from getting underway or arresting it at a very early stage. And so this law of covetousness is a, is a kind of is a version of that. It goes underneath it. But it says, look, here's the problem. Here's the problem. And I thought it was remarkable that C.K. Barrett, who's very traditional in a way and very conventional in his exegesis, I thought he came pretty close to a Girardian reading of this problem in his commentary on this passage. He says, quote, It is, of course, wrong to desire or covet one's neighbor's wife. But behind this guilty desire, shown to be guilty by its object, lies a desire which is guilty in itself, independently of its object, and sinful though quite possibly respectable. And that's mimetic desire. In other words, the Tenth Commandment says, you shall not have mimetic desire for something that is already in the possession of somebody else. But it doesn't say anything about having medic desire for those things that are still in play. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So it doesn't really talk about... And what Barrett simply sees is that there's another version of this problem just below that, which is larger. And the, and the commandment only sets up its bulwark back this way a little bit from the big problem underneath it. Uh, so... Sin, using the commandment, seized the opportunity and produced in me every sort of covetousness. Now, I want to read you this next little thing. This is what I was leading up to. I'm going to read you this and have you figure it out. See if you can. Did then what was good become death for me? Certainly not. Again. Rather, sin that it might be unmasked as sin produced death in me by using what was good so that through the commandment it might become sinful beyond all measure. I, I, I sat with this passage this week a little while, and I think it's unbelievably powerful. But it has so many... It's like amoeba strip turning back... Amoeba strip to the second power. Uh, in its convolution. But I think it's a tremendous thing. But try to figure it out. It's like it's like the physicist trying to tell us about the fifth dimension using language that's only appropriate to the to to uh, the world we know. Anyway, I was saved from my wrestling by C. K. Barrett, who says the following about this passage. It is unfair to expect perfect clarity here. <laughs> But notice what he says. This is even more important. It's unfair to expect perfect clarity here where clarity could be attained only by plunging more deeply into mythological speech than Paul intends to do. Isn't that interesting? In other words, he's trying to say... He's trying to speak truth without a metaphor. So I want to come to his aid with a metaphor. 
uh, and it'll be it'll no doubt water down things, but it won't water down things as much as it might if it were my metaphor, uh, because it's one that Simone Weil provides for us. So I want to I want to quote it, and actually I'm returning to it. This is something we have touched on before, but I just want to bring it in here again in this tradition I have of reweaving old things. But I think it captures what the what Paul is talking about. And I think it also captures the the inherent relationship between the first and second of the great commandments in the New Testament, loving your the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And here's what Simon Weil said. God has provided that when his grace penetrates to the very center of a person and from there illuminates all his being, he is able to walk on water without violating any of the laws of nature. When, however, a person turns away from God, he simply gives himself up to the law of gravity. Then... He thinks that he can decide and choose, but he is only a thing, a stone that falls. And if we examine human society and souls closely enough and with real attention, we see that wherever the virtue of supernatural light is absent, everything is is obedient to mechanical laws as blind and as exact as the laws of gravitation. And I think we have to also pick up on the social element in what Simone Weil is saying. She says, if we examine human society and souls within it closely enough, you see, we will see that how how mechanical this whole process is, obedient to laws as mechanical and as blind as the laws of gravitation. Well, while we still have in mind this social innuendo in Paul's treatment of or use of the term body. I want to turn to his use of the term flesh, which is even more scandalous in a way to us. And as with his use of the word body, he uses it in many ways and has in different contexts, it has different innuendo. But I want to try to try to uh, cure us of a couple of the notions that we've tended to have about that idea. For a long time, or for the casual reader, the flesh means sexuality. And Paul's quite concerned about it, you know. And so one would say, well, now, is Paul is concerned about this, and Paul's concerns usually are rooted in his own conversion experience. So what was exactly Paul's conversion experience? I mean, did, did, did Paul have his conversion experience coming out of a whorehouse? Uh, did he have his conversion experience uh, being caught in a in an illicit affair with his next-door neighbor's wife. You see what I mean? Was sexual desire the sin that took advantage of the law for Paul? You see what I'm saying? If you look at Paul's experience, it doesn't square with our with our reading of his of of flesh as a as a as a predominantly sexual preoccupation of Paul. Paul had his conversion as a religious persecutor, a righteous religious persecutor. And it's as someone converted under that circumstance that he has that he is concerned about the flesh. Now, 
I would say there are probably two fundamental positions on this question of flesh. One is the traditional position, which is that Paul is talking about sexual transgression. And the other is the modern position, which is that he's not talking about sexuality at all. And that's ridiculous, because sexuality is a very powerful force in our lives, and as you can see by just looking around, it can have terrible consequences. And so clearly, when Paul talks about it, there there are sexual implications to it. In the false story, for example, there's no problem with sexuality as long as the relation with God is primary, the human relation stays ordered, and sexuality is not a problem. It's only after the fall that Adam and Eve looked down and grabbed for a fig leaf. They grabbed for the fig leaf because after the fall, the world is has been infected by mimetic desire. The trans the relationship to the transcendent God has been has been uh, destroyed or damaged, and we're now in a world which is driven by mimetic forces. And at that point, sexuality becomes a dangerous phenomenon. Not because sexuality is dangerous, but because it's a very powerful emotion. And when it's mixed with mimetic desire, it creates very powerful and very often destructive realities. This came to mind this week, earlier this week. Our little sleepy Sonoma Valley here in our local newspaper comes out twice a week. There was a story on the front page which begins as follows. Anyone would agree the statistics are startling. Since 1988, seven men in Sonoma Valley have been accused of killing their wives or girlfriends. In fact, only a few of the local murders during the same time period have not followed that trend. And the county supervisor was asked to comment on this. He's a former policeman. And he said, quote, It's a very significant problem, and we're an extremely violent society. But unfortunately, I don't have a good answer about why it's happening. It's probably been going on since Adam and Eve. <laughs> well, there's lots of problems, you know. I'm not a sociologist. Uh, a local psychologist, who's also a friend of mine, was interviewed, and she said, Quote, violence is often the mirror image of suicide. That is, a man who's willing to kill himself may think little of murdering others at the same time. Now, I'm following something here. I'm following the problem of the flesh. Uh, and not in an ordinary sense, but in a more Pauline sense. What does this have? To, well, maybe it doesn't have anything. I don't know. Let me just follow it through. I want to return to something that I quoted from Hammer and Kelly two weeks ago. It's where Hammer and Kelly talks about the reprobate mind, Paul's idea of the reprobate mind. And, and, and Hammer and Kelly says, that's a mind enslaved, a mind that desires, quoting Kelly, desires not only to possess the other, but to consume or to destroy. It wishes not only to imitate the other, nor merely to possess itself in the other, but to destroy the other as the place where the self is alien to itself to destroy the other as the place where the self is alien to itself. And if we understood what Kelly's talking about there, I think we would understand the power 
of the New Testament insistence on the first and second commandment. You must love the Lord your God with your whole heart and soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. That that first commandment is an absolute essential ingredient if we are not to fall into this form of slavery. You see, the idolatry that enters into all human relationships as soon as the religious dimension is eliminated, as soon as the experience of transcendence is eliminated, gradually and sometimes less of, more quickly than that, all human relationships become idolatry. So, and slowly and sh- but surely, the, the reprobate mind or the enslaved mind, go back and quote Kelly one more time, desires not only to possess the other but to consume the other. It wishes not only to imitate the other, nor merely to possess itself in the other, but, and I would say finally, to destroy the other as the place where the self is alien to itself. In what way is the flesh involved in all that? When you have a powerful emotion, what's involved in a powerful emotion? I'd say there are two things always involved in a powerful emotion. One is something social. Try to think of a powerful emotion that's not social, has no social element at all. Now, you may say to me, a mystic can be in a state of a a transcendent state, a transfigured state, which can be regarded as a powerful emotion. And I would say, okay, I agree, agree. It's relational, but not social. But I would also say, let's not call that emotion. You know, when Eckhart when Eckhart says uh, uh, we must live without motives, I think he's. I think that applies to the trans, to the mystic's experience. To the extent that the mystic is having a profound experience, I don't think it qualifies as emotion in the ordinary way in which we use the word emotion. Okay. Emotion means to be motivated. And I think it always involves a social dimension. One may be in one's room all by oneself and having this emotion, but there's always another human being somewhere in that emotion that set it off or that anger, desire, etc., the whole thing. So I would say if one has a profound, profound emotion, there's a social element to it. And secondly... There's a physiological element to it. One's heart beat increases. One grows flush. See? One grows tense, sexually excited, uh, adrenaline, hormones, da-da-da-da-da. In other words, it doesn't happen in a biochemical vacuum. And these biochemical responses, they're triggered by the mimetic phenomenon. I think it's very important to remember which one comes first. The mimetic one is what triggers that. Or if there is a pre-existing biochemical one, the mimetic one is what drives it crazy. Okay. So to see emotion as having a social and a biochemical component. And suddenly, Paul's talk about the body now thinking of body that in, in the way in which we talk about the body politic or the social body. And the flesh becomes very powerful. Why is it that we try 
to do what we know we're supposed to do, but suddenly we get caught up in these things and we just go, and we're in a, some social si- situation and somebody pushes our buttons. We say this, push our buttons. That's what, and then we just do it. And when push our buttons, it's very mechanical. It's like, okay, you hit this button and this little thing runs out and it does, you know, it follows its course. Or you pull the lever and it's a very mechanical process. And it involves physiological responses that are very powerful. So Paul, I think we have to begin to see Paul's discussion of flesh in that way, in a very practical way. Now, he had, there are more transcendent dimensions to his discussion, but that would be a good place to begin. That means just because I've had a conversion, that doesn't change any of the biochemistry. It doesn't change any of the, any of the mimetic triggers that set that biochemistry in motion. It means a lot more than that, I think, for Paul. But if we could just grant him that, you see, we would be on, we would be at the starting place for understanding his the the depth of his concern, and so just because I've had a conversion does not change the mimetic, the power of the mimetic reality it does not change the biochemistry of my life. You see, I can I can have this conversion, but if I'm walking down the street, whatever it is, anything, the provocation, you know. Well, in my little tiny little corner of my cerebellum where I sort out what's true and untrue and right and wrong in the world. I may have it all figured out. But when that provocation occurs, the the body is in the old eon, solidly. You know, both feet in the old eon. And the provocation could be sexual, the provocation could be social, the provocation could be could be, uh, you know, violence or conflict or whatever it is. And all kinds of more subtle versions, no doubt. So Paul says, the flesh is still in bondage. Then he goes on. For in my inmost self I delight in God's law, but I see another making me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. Okay. I'm hardwired for the old eon. That's it. You want to know what Paul's conversation about flesh is? I'm hardwired for the old eon. Wretch that I am, finally, he throws his hands up, wretch that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And that was Paul's realization when the, when the law fell apart for him. He realized the law for Paul is religion. And the last great hope for, for humanity was religion. And Paul saw that it was impotent to really deal with the underlying problem. And the underlying problem is social, that is to say mimetic, that is to say covetousness, just what he talks about in chapter 7. The underlying problem is the flesh is hardwired for the old eon. So, this body of death, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, for Paul, the alternative to this body of death is the body of Christ. And for him, the body of Christ, obviously, the body of Christ is a social but more than social phenomenon. The body of Christ is the church, but it's also the communion of saints. 
and it's also something more mystical than either of those. But it is, as a beginning, a social phenomenon. That is to say, we, we live, this, this phenomenon does not happen in isolation. It is something that is, is a gathering force. And we are influenced, we influence each other and are influenced by each other. And we shouldn't apologize for that. We should, we should recognize and celebrate that fact that we live, that our, our virtues, to the extent that we have any, are born of that, of that relationship, just as our vices are born of one just like it. So right after he says, who will deliver me from this body of death, he says, thanks be to God, it is done through Christ Jesus our Lord, so that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh a slave to the law of sin. And the law is not going to be much help to us because it was its power was destroyed when its mechanisms were exposed by the crucifixion and its perversities and its implications or its complicity with sin was exposed by the crucifixion. So now something else. So he says in chapter 8, what the law weakened by the flesh was powerless to do, God has done. Quoting chapter chapter 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh are concerned about the things of the flesh, whereas those who live according to the Spirit are concerned about the things of the Spirit. And I, and to live according to the flesh, I think, is to be jerked around by the mimetic forces and by the biochemistry that is triggered by them. And I think, essentially, that's what that means. To live according to the flesh is to be condemned to that, to that kind of existence. None of our, you know, our instinctual apparatus was, was not developed in order to, in order to make mystics out of us. I think our mimetic apparatus was, by the way, but I think our instinctive apparatus was not. It was developed in order to, to, to achieve raw survival. When the Bible says we're made in the image and likeness of God, the mimetic in- implications are very strong. And the message of the, the biblical message is to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's a very powerful mimetic. Jesus is understood to be the incarnation, the, the perfect expression in human form of the Godhead. So the the role of of the, the role of mimesis in our religious lives is very powerful. But its pernicious possibilities are just as powerful. The problem the mimetic problem begins as soon as the as soon as the transcendent dimension of one's life is eliminated or uh, distorted in some way. And so Barrett says, flesh means a mind from which God is excluded. He says, the concern of the flesh is death. The concern of the spirit is life and peace. Well, the concern of the flesh is death in the sense that 
the concern of the flesh is to avoid death. And it usually avoids death by conspiring with it in some way. The flesh will avoid death by conspiring with it in some way. That is to say, to kill that which threatens, or to somehow deflect it. Flesh is concerned with death because flesh is concerned with survival. And at the very end, I'll just go to the end of chapter 8, which he concludes with a beautiful hymn. Paul is talking about the love of God that we know through faith in the crucified Christ. Because the, the one who dies this torturous death on the cross is the beloved of God. And what does that do for us? It frees us from the contest over winners and losers. But if the one who dies this wretched death on the cross is the beloved of God, then the 98% of the human melodrama, which is about winners and losers, suddenly means nothing. So we have another part of the old eon is turning the God into the God of the primitive sacred. That is to say, the God of victory. The God who is out to vanquish the infidel. You see? And triumph over the unrighteous. And turn the God into that kind of a God. And we've done it for 2,000 years. What Paul sees is that the crucified one is the beloved of God. The one who's hated by everybody, who's abandoned by everybody, unanimity minus one, is the beloved of God. If that's true, then we're, then feel the liberation. Because there's nothing that can take it away from us. The cross proves that there's nothing that can take it away from us. And I think that's what Paul says here at the end of chapter 8. He says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will distress or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it stands written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. That's from Psalm 44. Yet in all of it, we are more than victors because of him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor principalities, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just before this, you know, he's talking about we now can speak Abba. In other words, we can speak to God with the intimacy that Christ spoke to God. But that relationship represented by the word Abba cannot be extinguished no matter what. There is no contest that you can lose and having lost it, lose that. And that's pretty liberating. I'll tell you how this is for me. My anxiety, of course, is that I do a good job doing what I do. Coming here, giving 
talks and so on. So I have the standard anxieties, which are of the body and of the flesh, <laughs> about doing a good job. And I doubt that those will go away. For your sake, I hope they don't. But because I work hard, but one can sometimes fail in a way that's more, not only more interesting, but more revelatory than if one had succeeded. 